Welcome to Code Reg, a podcast dedicated to regulatory remediation programs. This season is all about SHREMS 2, and today we're picking up where we left off from episode one. We are going to discuss the different approaches to consider as you tackle your remediation project, along with recommendations for the late adopters. Now, an important reminder, the contents of this podcast are based on our experience handling large-scale remediation projects for our global client base and does not constitute legal advice. Factor is an integrated law company providing complex legal work at scale. We are not a law firm and do not provide legal advice. With me today, I have David Shaw and Carl Dorward. And for this episode, we'll be focused on few topics. Uh, one, the deeper dive into a couple of approaches that we discussed on the last episode around a targeted approach versus a blanket or shotgun approach, along with discussion around the importance of internal alignment of stakeholders, uh, as well as UK and US distinctions and some specifics around the Shrems 2 ruling and, and the latest regulations there. To start out, you know, I want to ask you, Carl, so I, I know you've worked with a client in particular that spent some time with us planning out what a targeted approach would look like. We've mentioned that a few times, but I want to go into some more detail today to explain what what the the difference actually is between this targeted approach versus this blanket or or shotgun type approach we've talked about. Can you share uh, some examples around uh, uh, how a client has approached this in a a targeted fashion? Yeah, absolutely, Koki. Thanks for that. But before I do that, I think it's also important to understand why a client would have a targeted approach versus a shotgun approach. And a lot of that comes down to a couple of different key details within their own uh, current operating models, which would be, you know, one, their understanding and ability to pull data that would inform the remediation activities. You know, being targeted means that you are going to also be able to get a little bit more granular. That can start up front, where we've seen some clients come to us uh, based on their uh, procurement organizations, partnering with them having good systems in place, you know, coming to us with pretty strong intelligence already upfront that will drive the the counterparty outreach. You know, that's just, they, uh, they know their vendors well, they know what their vendors are doing for them well. So in that sense, it's a targeted approach because they, you know, they know their contracting ecosystem and their, and their vendors really well. Target approach though, can also come into play where you don't know your vendors very well. So you need to be very prescriptive around how you're doing the outreach. But to do that, you have to understand the data. And if you don't have good access to the data or the data hasn't been captured in a way that it's easily digestible to drive some type of strategy to move forward with the remediation, then you're going to do a a target approach because you're going to want to understand how to narrow the scope pretty quickly. And this could also would also be useful for folks who are thinking about their remediation strategy and are coming up on a deadline that is, you know, six months or less at this point away. You know, how can they really quickly narrow the scope to determine which of their supplier contracts are going to be impacted? And that's going to start with a couple of different strategies that we've seen put in place and that we've also helped uh, some of our clients put in place, which are potentially prioritizing based on their suppliers definitely looking at the criticality of the of the contracts to the business uh, which as you can imagine would put that priority higher but also it could be maybe one that's critical to, to the business but also really the the type of data is very sensitive and they know very relevant for outreach right up front and then there's also maybe sensitivity around the vendors in terms of you know key relationships where they're not going to want to just pepper all of their vendors 
with some type of outreach. They're going to want to be very focused because of the nature of the relationships, uh, you know, both the criticality, but also, you know, potentially treat some vendors with a more white glove service because they know the the vendor relationship is very important for their for their business and they want to protect that relationship and ensure that they're doing this in a in a fashion that doesn't disrupt the business or the business relationship. It's really helpful. You know, as I'm I'm listening to you, Carl, I'm I'm thinking through what sort of activities would be required here. And and uh, thanks for the reminder on, you know, as we're recording this, we're a little past the midway point in the year and we're looking at an end of year deadline. So if I'm listening to this, I'm I'm thinking, you know, everything Carl's saying here, I've been thinking about staffing this up with, with, uh, you know, some data privacy folks and, uh, you know, t- trying to, to dive right in. But, but what you're talking about sounds like a, a lot more information gathering, uh, at, at the front end and, and how, how critical that is. Yeah, I mean that's totally right, Koki. It's it's very similar to what you would do in in an M and A context, where you need to perform some type of due diligence on on your contract population, and you can do that where you can leveraging the technology that's already in place with your clients. But one of the things we see is that while the technology that clients have in place is adequate for the day to day contracting needs that they have, how they're capturing the data on the back end may not help facilitate this type of insight that they need, or it might just not be apparent from the face of the contract. For instance, a, you know, a large SaaS contract where the company could be based in the US, but they're, they're handling data globally. And from the face of the contract, it may not be clear that, hey, these guys would be someone that require the SEC modules or someone that's going to require the same type of treatment as an obvious one that's within a, within a jurisdiction where you know that they're subject to the SEC requirements. But yeah, so you know, in, in the instance where you need to mine the data. It's leveraging the client's technology and supplementing that regardless with potentially other outside technology platforms that drive automated clause extraction, You know, leveraging AI, leveraging machine learning, leveraging a process. Uh, so really approaching it with a project methodology that also leverages resources that can go through the data because as, as you, you know, are aware, some of our clients have a hundred contracts. Some have a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. And you know where you can gain lift through a tech- application of technology with the right types of people and project methodology. You're gonna be able to drive those insights in a in a more formalized fashion. That also, I think, David, this I would kick this over to you for a second, but is also something that you can show a regulator should they come knocking. And it is six months to the deadline, and you're not you know you're not going to get to full compliance, but you're going to have a methodology that you can demonstrate to the regulators that you have a very thoughtful approach to how you're seeking compliance, you're putting the right level of effort against the the deadline and showing some form of compliance even though it's not going to be, you know, full mandatory compliance by the probably by the end of the year. Yeah, Carl, that's a that's an excellent point. Um, I say documentation, documentation, documentation. I think it's critically important that you've got a plan, but that plan is very well laid out, um, so that if you are ever asked by a regulator while you're in the in the course of your remediation, you haven't achieved full compliance or material compliance, you at least have uh, a pretty detailed roadmap um, and also milestones that you've hit along the way. So that you can, you know, you've got a good story to tell um, the regulators. I, I wanted to go back to something you said at the beginning of the discussion around the kind of prioritization of vendors, because I could see 
situation where you've got competing constituencies and this kind of goes to the topic that we're going to cover a little bit later in the discussion around internal alignment but you know if i'm the privacy guy or woman and uh, or the lawyer in the company what i consider to be a priority may be different from what the business considers to be a priority so like the criticality of a vendor from a financial perspective from a relationship perspective that vendor may not be the vendor that poses the most compliance risk for the organization. You know, it may be the, the vendor that's sitting much lower down in the chain, but nonetheless has access and is processing, you know, significant amounts of personal data. So again, that whole concept of internal alignment and making sure that you've got buy-in from the appropriate groups and clear lines of responsibility and decision-making authority, I think, becomes critical uh, at the very beginning before you even do any kind of outreach, just as part of your trying to narrow down the scope of the population that you may eventually do that outreach to. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And then if I could go back to something you said about in terms of the documentation, Koki, you know, I think you were alluding to this as well when we're talking about the, the targeted approach. You know, if you are treating this with the robustness of a managed project where you're operationalizing a lot of those tasks and activity, you're, you're driving reporting, you're providing analytics, status updates, that's also another piece of data that you have in your hands in terms of what's been happening. You've got, you've got a great record of the level of activity, the status, you know, even to the party level where we have you know, some clients that have already performed some of the outreach and sent out questionnaires and you know, there's been no response back from the client. Mm-hmm. You then go, you know, then you then follow up, a, you know, have a second or a third follow-up, still no response. And then, you know, you, as long as you have a strategy in place to then elevate it to the business, you know, again, you have this accountability, but also audit worthy records that, that you can produce that will, you know, not, not that I'm a, a lawyer, well, not a practicing lawyer anymore, but something that I think you, it's better than having nothing in, in place, right? If someone does come, hopefully un, unlikelihood that a regulator comes, you know, all of this is accessible to the client to show the level of activity and the level of effort that's, that's been undertaken, especially as we're, again, in a short window with the deadline looming at the end of this year. Yeah. And thinking about that that level of effort, uh, I'm, I'm curious I'd say it's probably a question for David. In terms of more of a blanket approach, right? Just now we've been talking about digging in and trying to understand, you know, based on type of vendor, relationship, sensitivity of data, how to narrow the scope. I'm again putting myself in in the shoes uh, of you know an organization where there's not a technology uplift. A lot of these questions around type and criticality uh, of vendor and the relationships, it's just too complex. It would take us six to twelve months to even narrow the scope. So. I now feel the need to go with a blanket approach, and I and I, I just do a massive outreach, a broad group of, of vendors and, and service providers. From a, a regulatory uh, compliance perspective, I, any sense on on how that would be perceived as uh, it, at least efforts towards compliance, David? Well, again, I think it's an approach that, again, if well documented, would help to tell a story, a good story mm. um, to the regulators. The one concern, however, that I would have uh, with doing a, a, you know, kind of a shotgun kind of blanket outreach, it's going to highlight to parties outside of the organization that your firm may not have a good sense as to where its personal data is. And, you know, one of the fundamental requirements under the general data protection regulation is that in order to protect data, you need to know where that data is. Now, that right. doesn't that doesn't mean that you need to know which file in, in the file cabinet um, the data resides. But if you've got a bank of file cabinets and you know there's personal data there, they need, it needs to be locked down. So, you know, while a certainly an approach, there are risks that come with that approach because you are essentially showing your hand that 
you don't necessarily have good records as to where your personal data is. But nonetheless, if it's right. an approach and if you've documented it well and you're pursuing it with each of the vendors you've reached out to, then again, it's evidence of a certain good faith effort to comply with the regulation mm-hmm. by the deadline. Mm-hmm. I, I will say, if I could jump in, one of the things that we have seen from some of our clients that, that took that approach is that while it does have the risks associated that, that you mentioned, David, it also, though, does bring some parties back to the table to re-engage. And you might find that they're potentially out of scope for, for you know, the SEC requirements, but not necessarily out of scope for some form of privacy-related you know, contract in place, like a, you know, amending your DPA. So that might not necessarily come out during a targeted approach, although it probably would through the course of that better relationship down the road. But it does, you know, I, I do think both approaches have value, but they also, there's also risks, right? Because again, in one sense, if you have a large contract population in, in either scenario, what can you leverage to drive the type of insight you're looking for? Is it technology assisted? Again, do you have the resources to run a project at this level with the type of rigor that a project requires? Uh, both from, you know, day-to-day management, aligning internal stakeholders, getting action taken, you know, that is something that we see in all projects that we run, right? Whether it's for regulatory remediation or others, uh, you have conflicting priorities, even within the folks that you need that are critical to the success of the project. I would like to, you know, taking those two sort of approaches in place, I still think one of the things that they have in common though is, you know, what are you doing along the way, which we've talked about, right? It's it's the tracking, it's the reporting, it's being able to drive some type of data and analytics that are both critical to understanding where you are within your own project. Also, that's what will drive insight into, into budget forecasting and reporting. It will also drive insight into resourcing. It will drive accountability for next steps. But it's also helpful for, you know, as your end product for your GDPR compliance, right? You'll have this dashboard that helps you understand where you are at the vendor level, what activity has been taken per vendor, And then one of the things I think we're going to start to see is very similar to maybe two years ago, where you saw really uptick in a lot of the compliance-related technologies. Because, you know, as you know, David, although I'd love a little bit more insight, it's not just doing this activity, but it's actually operationalizing the compliance activity, right? It's, you know, having a, a platform that you can actually demonstrate your accountability to the requirements. And... I think that is what we'll start to, I think we'll start to see a bit more of that again. I think we're already seeing it in some clients who even have it, but may have, I don't want to say forgotten about it. That's probably not accurate, but haven't realized, you know, this is a, a great indication for maintaining the robustness of, of those technology platforms. Do you have kind of any insight there? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, a project of this nature provides opportunity while many firms are doing it under the gun, right? With only six months or now less to go. If you're doing this reach out and you're collecting various data points, you need to be more forward thinking and say, okay, what's coming down the pike possibly in six or nine months or a year from now? And as you're modifying your databases, implementing new databases, new technologies, think about it from that perspective. Is there additional data that can be collected so that you're somewhat future-proofing yourself against, or not against, but preparing yourself for future regulatory change, which is very likely to be coming in many jurisdictions in a pri- from a privacy perspective, let alone other areas? Well, and to that point, it let's not forget, it's not only, we're experts in contracts and contracts, like that's what we specialize in, but, but there's a, a whole other aspect of this, which is being able to enforce your own governance, right, of these policies and principles across your organization's data landscape. You know, that's a little bit outside of our, you know, what we wanted to talk about 
here, but it it is relevant, and I think it is. You know, to your point, you know, you, you see this quite a bit, obviously, in the uh, financial services world, where you know, I know you have a lot of experience. You know, it's almost uh, every annual basis there's another regulatory change or repapering requirement or some reform that requires you to go back in and look at your data. I think it's relevant to not only look at technology and your technology infrastructure from a privacy perspective, but I also, you know, as you can imagine, we're talking about how to drive insights from your contract population and and can you do that through your own methodologies, which you have in place now, or do you require outside assistance like like us, where we come in and our arms and legs, but also deploying some type of uh, technology to enable quicker insight. So I think it, you know, I think there's an opportunity to look at both technologies, your CLM, like how are you managing your contracts, but also how are you, how are you managing your policies, your procedures within your own data landscape? It makes sense. I, I'm again just you know listening to this, trying to to put myself in the the shoes of you know some of the organizations that are faced with this challenge. And you know, one key thing that's coming to mind is who owns what here, right? Both in terms of the remediation efforts, but also in, in terms of this ongoing compliance. Uh, you know, from a funding perspective, a governance perspective, I imagine there's probably a lot of tug of war internally in terms of who will own what. It's Carl, is that something you've seen with your clients? Yeah, I mean, like of course, and like any any initiative for anything, right? It's it's where's the budget coming out of? Is it the left pocket or the right pocket? At the end of the day, it's the same pair of pants, right? It, you know, the company has a requirement, but it's for a lot of our clients. Funding is an issue because of the of the scale of what's required to do. And when I say it's an issue, it's not that the money doesn't exist. It's everybody's already at this point of the year, you know, has their budget set. Um, although now a lot of them are coming back up on, uh, you know, the next round of budget for 2023. So it's probably a good time to be thinking about this if if you can, because you could actually properly budget for it as part of your record, reporting re- requirements and internal initiatives with finance. You know, I do think it also depends on. To your point, who's driving this? We've seen some some uh, instances where procurement is leading the charge, obviously in partnership with with privacy uh, and legal and or compliance, depending on how organizations are structured. We've seen others where it is privacy leading, but they of course need and require the support of the other teams within their corporation because they you know they have to there's there's legal aspects obviously there's compliance requirements and then there are just the requirements around managing the business relationships like who knows the the vendors the best it's typically not going to be legal sometimes it's even not procurement but it's you know it's actually the line item folks one rung below who are interacting on a daily basis with the counterparties and their and their vendors so you know it's really crucial though that that does get sorted because the the level of activity required depending on again your your contract population and or vendor relationships and frankly where you do business and what type of business you do you know can drive those costs up pretty significantly so getting internal alignment on on funding is critical getting the right level of stakeholders involved early on in the process is critical because inevitably there's going to be changes uh, if you are starting at this point in the year, you know my gut would be that you will continue to try to see compliance into 2023, and as a result, again, you're impacting budgets on on both sides of of the fiscal year, and you're going to want to figure out how to plan for that appropriately and not affect other initiatives potentially that you're trying to do. Because as you know, we all know, contracts, contracting, data, legal work, contract work; these are cycles that occur every year. Uh, and different companies are at different life, uh, you know, parts of at different sections of their life cycle where they're you know tackling different things along the continuum uh, that that is CLM. So it's you know you can take advantage of that 
and and properly fund it for not just the activity, but some of the downstream pieces that we were talking about around your broader data governance and data landscape management policies, procedures, et cetera. Or you can try to figure out like, hey, let's just, this is enough to tackle. This is hard enough to tackle. Let's just focus on this, get the funds allotted for this, and then take the next step after you know we feel we've gotten to some material form of compliance. And I'm, I'm guessing that when you've seen clients be successful with that budget alignment and stakeholder alignment, that it has been facilitated through some type of program management, like a centralized uh, program manager. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Uh, sometimes that's what's requ- required to to drive. Sometimes it's just it's just fundraising, right? Which mm. sounds silly, but mm-hmm. but it happens, right? It, it's going to stakeholders uh, across different aspects of the organization and saying, "Hey, this is why we have to do it. Uh, this is something that the board also will be aware of." So we have to figure out how to pay for it, and you know, everybody roll up your sleeves and and you know, dig into your pockets and let let's come up with some money. Program management is really useful for the overall success because of what we talked about in terms of the number of different stakeholders that are going to be involved in any type of regulatory remediation, but especially something as complex as this for organizations. And again, coming out with, I'd say, less time to prepare than potentially we, we you know, we had for the, the first round of, of GDPR. David, I don't know if you have thoughts there, but I do think it's important. Yeah, no, I certainly think there's, you know, certainly there was advanced notice of what was happening with the updated SECs, but not kind of notice that folks had um, in anticipation of the implementation of GDPR back in May of 2018. Yeah, certainly. Well, and, you know, I, I know that as we've been working through uh, some remediation efforts with some of our clients, there have been some in parallel developments to some regional distinctions uh, around around these rulings. So, so I figured this could be a, a good opportunity for us to touch on some of those those UK and, and US distinctions uh, that we mentioned at the top of the episode. Yeah, David, as you're thinking about that, j- just one point, Koki, we were talking about budget and internal alignment. One way to defer some of that budget is, I think, going to be relevant for what, what David's about to talk to, which mm. is, you know, if, if, if as certain portions are kicked down the road a little bit, that, you know, it, it also goes back to prioritization. If you know you have clients that are affected in the distinctions that David's going to be speaking about, you know, it buys you more time to be able to respond and potentially fund that activity. So just something I don't want to lose sight of. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is, there is a bright spot, some good news, some breathing room, I guess, for folks that companies that have operations in the UK in particular, and that engage in transfers of, of personal data out of the UK to countries other than those that are in the EU or the EEA or in other jurisdictions that are considered to provide adequate protection for data. There's a later conformance period uh, that uh, UK Information Commissioner's Office has set, which is March 21st, 2024. So if you're doing business in the UK and transferring uh, data out of the UK to, say, the US, for example, you do have some additional time to implement the uh, updated standard contractual clauses. And it is possible for firms. There's been some confusion um, marketplace around which you know which sets of clauses are to be used if they're you know UK post Brexit. There was some uncertainty as to where the UK would land from a data privacy perspective, but I think most folks thought they would land exactly where the EU has landed, which is they'd adopt the GDPR pretty much the whole kit and caboodle, uh, with the exception of some some UK specific um, kind of conformance requirements. The UK has, in fact, adopted um, the GDPR. Uh, it's possible to use the EU standard contractual clauses in the UK post, you know, March 21 as part of the go forward process. I should say 
But the UK has released an addendum to the standing contractual clauses, the EU clauses, to bring those clauses into conformance with the European Union's standing contractual clauses. There's also a separate agreement that firms in the UK can use. It's known as the UK International Data Transfer Agreement, which is intended to be a standalone document that firms can implement. And that essentially covers off all the requirements under the UK GDPR, which it's, again, a reminder, we covered this in the first call, you know, the deadline for conformance uh, with respect to transfers outside of the EU, EEA jurisdictions. It's December 27th, 2022. And just a couple of other points to, to note. You know, the UK has been considered to be a jurisdiction that provides adequate protection for personal data. So transfers from the EU, from France, Germany to the UK do not require the standard contractual clauses. They do certainly require compliance with the other articles of the general data protection regulation, but one does not need to go through the exercise of implementing uh, standard contractual clauses if you're transferring data into the UK. Thanks, David. That's an interesting point you made around the UK International Data Transfer Agreement uh, as as being a standalone agreement. Just thinking about the short timeline that we're looking at here, where it may be relevant, it does seem that uh, using a a standalone agreement could at least help accelerate the process a bit versus, uh, you know, opening up some of the the data privacy agreements or or other, um, you know, adding the SCCs to agreements that some of our clients already have with their counterparties. Does that align with, with anything that you've seen or your expectations that, that potentially that standalone agreement would just have a, a bit less friction? Yeah, and I, I, it does, Koki, and I, it's a good point. You know, so I think many firms will, will rely upon the new UK International Data Transfer Agreement for that very reason, because it is standalone. But the, the, the kind of the wrinkle there is firms that are doing business not only in the UK, but in the EU, I think firms may choose to use the standard contractual clauses and then just add the UK addendum, because by, hmm. by implementing the standard contractual clauses, the EU clauses with the UK addendum, you can essentially achieve, achieve compliance under both the EU requirements as well as under the UK and not have to have two separate sets of agreements, if you will. So, but certainly for firms that are firms that are operating, you know, kind of solely within or wholly within the UK, the IDTA, the International Data Transfer Agreement is probably the, the easier way to go from a timing perspective. Great. Thanks, David, for walking us through those distinctions. It's very helpful. Well, that's our time for today. Uh, We covered the topics that we wanted to discuss. Next time, we'll be discussing contract hygiene, uh, the CLM environment, and activities you can do to prepare yourself for future regulatory change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Code Reg. You can find this podcast and more at our website at www.factor.law. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate if you take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.